how can we collectively agree what good looks like? So it's not an N of one negotiation each and every time between a hardworking entrepreneur or innovator who has done what they believe is great work to prove out that something is effective, safe, and trustworthy. They don't have to educate every potential buyer, whether that's a payer, whether that's a clinical partner, whether that's a large employer, for example. We've defined that in the pre-competitive space a priori. Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. Today, I spoke with Jen Goldsack, CEO of DIME, the Digital Medicine Society. In their own words, DIME is a global nonprofit and the professional home for all members of the digital medicine community. But before we dive in, I first met Jen in sunny San Diego at one of the Exponential Medicine Conferences, I believe five years ago or so, through no other than Ed Cox. Yes, he was a guest on season one of this podcast. Since then, we've seen each other in passing at different events. Jen is super energetic, eloquent, and just really a get-stuff-done personality. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jen. Jen, welcome to the DTX podcast. For all of our wonderful listeners, would love to learn a bit about yourself, your background, and don't forget one small interesting fact about yourself. That's always important. Oh gosh, no pressure there. Well, delighted to be here. Jen Goldsack, CEO here at the Digital Medicine Society or DIME. My background is actually trained as a chemist. My research was into liquid crystals. So uh, anyone looking at an LCD screen right now, you're welcome. Then did nothing sensible. So perhaps I'll make this my fun fact. I uh, did nothing sensible for a few years. Actually was a full-time athlete, competed at the 2008 Olympics, which was extraordinary. And then came back to an economic climate where doing anything was going to be quite challenging when you're in your late 20s and trying to get a job for the first time. And uh, ended up working in healthcare and was there for the passage of health reform, the High Tech Act and now the digitization of healthcare. So it's been an extraordinary time to be in this field. And so much of that experience was what drove the founding of Dime and a lot of what we'll be talking about today, I'm sure. Well, first of all, amazing. I think this is a first for us on the DTX podcast, an Olympic athlete, so check. <laughs> That's right. Well, at least we get to sit and have the conversation and we haven't gone out on a run or something stupid. So this is all fine as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Well, for those who are following me, my wife and I, we did 365 days straight running, not 24 hours a day, obviously, but every single day for 365 days. Did you have the sort of minimum amount you wanted to do every day? Three and a half K every single day for 365 days. Perfect. That's manageable. You can always talk yourself into that. You can always find time one way or the other. I love this. <laughs> we'll talk more about that after the recording, I'm sure. So let's dive into Dime. Maybe just tell our listeners a bit more on how that was formed, when, so a bit of the history and what is DIME all about? The Digital Medicine Society, or DIME, is a global nonprofit. Our mission is to advance the ethical, effective, equitable, and safe use of digital technologies to redefine healthcare and improve lives. And I think there's a couple of things that are really important before we even go back to what was the impetus for DIME, why did we found it? is while we are tech enthusiasts, we're certainly not tech determinists. When we think about what are we trying to do here, 
we are sort of not trying to shoehorn digital technologies into every nook and cranny of healthcare delivery and medical product development. But rather what we get excited about is there's these exciting range of new tools in the toolbox in the digital era of industry. They've been embraced by many other industries. You might argue all other industries. And how can we think about bringing the promise of these new digital tools and technologies to bear to improve the way we care for people, to address some of the most pressing and persistent challenges that unfortunately we face and have faced for a long time in healthcare? And so that really gets at the origin story, if you like, which was we recognized that digital health is probably the most interdisciplinary field you can imagine. So from citizen scientists and cybersecurity experts to the physicists and engineers actually sort of making the chips to product folks, data scientists, clinical scientists, clinical care providers, healthcare executives, payers, regulators, investors, funders. Unless we're all speaking the same language, unless we're all driving in the same direction, unless we have a shared North Star and a shared definition of what good looks like, the likelihood of us realizing the promise of the digitization of healthcare was low. And the risk of us simply just adding more inefficiency, adding costs was high. So that's why we set up Dime to be that home for all of the experts who are driving and passionate about the digitization of healthcare across the board. Let's step back. We've been using the term broadly digital health for a decade plus. This is a digital therapeutics podcast specifically. And part of the reason why I wanted to have you on also, there's digital medicines. I don't remember. It feels like forever ago, but I don't think it was that long ago. Health Excel, you guys and the DTA collaborated on actually sort of defining some of these buckets. So for the ones that are just tuning in, maybe you can walk us through a little bit, specifically probably around digital medicine versus digital therapeutics as a little bit of a definitional component to this? Great question and a great place to start. And you're exactly right that we did work on these definitions with our colleagues at DTA, with our colleagues at HealthXL and with Node Health. And the way that we've been thinking about it is digital health broadly, all of those sort of digital tools from business and commerce tools, from storage tools like EHR to communication tools like telehealth, that we might harness in the pursuit of improved healthcare. Then you think about digital medicine products, and we think of those as evidence-based tools that measure and or intervene in people's health. And then there's digital therapeutics, and I don't need to tell you, or probably most people uh, listening in, these really are those evidence-based tools where the software themselves provides the mechanism of action, whether that's therapeutic action, whether that's diagnostic. And so you can almost imagine it as concentric circles where digital health is the field broadly. And like every other industry, just as we were saying, digital tools are going to play an increasingly important role, communication, storage, analysis, so on and so forth, digital medicine products within that and digital therapeutics within that. So they're not mutually exclusive. They all exist within the same field. And I think the one other thing I'd add there is when we talk about sort of digital medicine at Dime, we hold true to the definitions that we created around this is a digital medicine product. 
But I think we're increasingly moving into an era where it's less about products. And of course, everyone will rail against the point solutions. And I am one of those people. And I think it's more about the digitization of healthcare and the digitization of the practice of medicine, I think is a much more useful way to think about it now, especially as the field starts to mature. In order to use a digital therapeutic, sort of effectively, it has to work within a broader environment where that can be appropriately prescribed, for example. And if those structures aren't in place, if the whole ecosystem doesn't exist, we can't be successful. So our mindset has definitely sort of switched to the digitization of healthcare, recognizing the different product types that will be important. Let's dive a little bit deeper. You already alluded to the concentric circles of digital medicine and digital therapeutics. And we've had the Digital Therapeutic Alliance members like Andy and Megan and even Jessica when she was still with the DTA back in the day. How are you guys same, different? How are you working together? Again, putting that concentric circle picture in front of our listeners. So I think the most important thing is to say that we work very closely together and we work in lockstep. There's too much work to do for us to be either doing redundant work or leaving gaps. So when we think about these concentric circles, we think about the relationship we have with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. So Megan was on our founding strategic advisory board. She's now on our founding members council. We just did an enormous body of work actually on regulatory pathways for digital products in the US and DTA was an important part of that pre-competitive collaboration. We also try and listen, learn and stand on the shoulders of that work. We've just described the large field of all of the things that could be digitized in order to improve the way we care for people. What we try and do is amplify and support the work of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, whether it's thinking about what are evidentiary standards, how are we thinking about regulatory pathways, how are we thinking about market access, for example, how are we thinking about pricing and reimbursement? We discuss those things, we provide input, but our job is really to amplify that and make sure the community is aware of that work. And then we think about how do we dovetail into that with all of the other sorts of digital products and digitally enabled approaches to healthcare and research. So that as two organizations, we are always in lockstep and we are more than the sum of the parts. Thank you so much for that. Let's dive into stakeholder management. Obviously, digital medicines exist for a reason, and maybe we'll start with the patients. What's in for the patients, right? Because people don't go seeking digital medicines per se, but maybe you can describe a little bit, and, and you actually talked about earlier that while digital medicine is evolving from products, maybe just use an example, walking us through a little bit. What's in it for the patient and an example of a product? It doesn't need to be a, your favorite one, just the general one. I'd never tell you my favorite one anyway. <laughs> so here's what I think. Eugene, I shared with you our mission at Dime. And part of that mission is to redefine healthcare. And what does that actually mean? And so to us, we think about in current state, good healthcare is how good are we sitting in the clinic, waiting for someone to turn up at the doors of the clinic already sick? And then good healthcare is measured by how good are we at treating them once they arrive? It is a sick care system, and that's what we're dealing with, and that's true across the world. One of many things that the new sort of digital tools in the toolbox offer us is the ability not to have to sit in the clinic and wait for someone to arrive sick on the doorstep, that we can actually measure and monitor and predict and screen in a low friction, high access, and much more equitable way than we ever have before. So it's less about let's do the same clinical workflow that we already have and switch out 
a molecular product for a software product. Now, there's plenty of places where a molecular product doesn't exist, and actually a software product can come in and solve a massive gap in treatment and dramatically improve people's lives. But at Dime, we're thinking about a fundamentally bigger shift where these digital therapeutics plug into a different way of caring for people, where we build care around the patient and not the clinic. And digital therapeutics become one um, element in a sort of very patient-centric, very solution-oriented approach to caring for someone where actually good healthcare is about keeping someone healthy and about keeping them out of the clinic instead of, as we said, waiting for them to arrive sick at the doorstep. And unfortunately, because of challenges to access, because of costs, all too often that visit is delayed beyond when it should be. So the outcomes are more poor. And so the cost of care is more expensive. There's an awful lot we can do around access, equity, outcomes, efficiency, cost, simply by redefining what good healthcare looks like. And I think digital products, whether it's remote monitoring, whether it's our ability to do sort of large predictive modeling, whether it's our ability to actually reach and care for people through telehealth, through asynchronous nudges, through traditional medical products and digital therapeutics, so many opportunities to do this differently. And we think about this sort of virtual first care model, if you like, in a lot of detail over here at Dime. Let's move to the next stakeholder. There are pharma companies or biopharma that have launched in the past digital medicine units. There are some that have them now. Again, why do you think, from your perspective, pharma is looking at these technologies or even calling these units digital medicines versus digital health versus digital therapeutics? Because their core business is to diagnose and treat and hopefully in some cases cure disease. And there are definitely areas, and I mean, you know this better than most, where we've been unsuccessful in developing new medical products. We haven't been able to come up with the appropriate diagnostic that's accessible to everyone, that we haven't been able to develop a traditional molecular product that can actually address some of the most prevalent, unfortunately, conditions and diseases that we have today. I don't think anyone's sitting there saying, we're going to come up with a software product that's going to reduce tumor size in cancer. That's not the statement, but it's more that alongside our traditional devices, molecular products, biologics, there's a new class of product and they offer enormous promise especially in some therapeutic areas where there's enormous unmet need and where these therapies can be administered with much lower risk, whether that's risk of addiction or toxicity, for example. So this, I think, is at the heart of why large pharma companies have come to the table here. It's their core business. It's developing effective new therapies to improve the way we care for people. So we shouldn't think about it as an edge case. We shouldn't think about it as there's only this small cohort of folks doing this innovative work. It's an essential part of treatment options in the digital era. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Jen. Can you speak a little bit about the payer contracting framework? A lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show, and I'm sure they would love to know what's coming their way to help. Thanks, Chandana. Great question. And we're really proud of that toolkit, and it's had great impact. So previously, I was talking about this concept of building care around the patient and not the clinic. And how can we use that full tech stack? So all of the digital sort of enablers that we have today, digital therapeutics, team-based care, clinical expertise, all of this packaged together 
in what we describe as virtual first care. And so actually that payer V1C contracting toolkit came out of our impact collaborative, which focuses on virtual first care. And the goal of this toolkit was to speed the conversations and the contracting between virtual first care providers and payers here in the US. The problem that we were working to solve for is all too often, there's almost an infinite loop at the beginning of those conversations where virtual first care providers will approach a payer and say, we want to discuss our medical practice because it is a medical practice is reimbursed for the care that we provide. And they're moved off. Oh, well, your software is a service. You need to go and talk to this department. And they're like, no, we're healthcare. Or, oh, you're a digital therapeutic. You need to go and talk to our sort of product folks. No, we are a healthcare provider. And so the purpose of this toolkit was not only around education, but to be very solution oriented. So we actually have template contracts with boilerplate language that will allow folks who are offering healthcare through a virtual first care approach to speed their interactions, their negotiation, their path to the conversation with the right person as a payer organization. And what we've seen is dramatic reductions in the timelines to contracting for virtual first care providers up to six months based on some of the stories that members of our virtual first care community have shared with us. So it's really actually back to what Eugene was asking me about earlier, which was some of these definitions. We have to make sure that we are all speaking the same language. Otherwise, digital therapeutics providers and virtual first care companies are coming to payer organizations and being routed like they're a SaaS solution. And that's simply not the case. So this toolkit has been quite effective actually at educating folks as well as providing that initial template to address all of the privacy, security, and performance requirements that go into payer contracting. And I'm gonna have been here. This is, must be music to a lot of entrepreneurs' ears because the hearsay stories that, that every payer, every health plan deals with this process and have their own DNA to it and their own processes. So in any way, shape or form that Dime with the ecosystem partners can standardize this or help standardize this and put something in front, this is super helpful. On that note, we sort of touched on the health plans as part of that ecosystem and what's in it for them ultimately. Maybe you can expand on it because there's so many solutions out there and even forget about the large employers or self-insured employer health plans are also bombarded. So what's in it for them to even work with the digital medicine or Dime and others? The value proposition is different depending on what initiative they come to the table on, but it means so much of what we do at Dime, the evidentiary frameworks, how can we collectively agree what good looks like? So it's not an end of one negotiation each and every time between a hardworking entrepreneur or innovator who has done what they believe is great work to prove out that something is effective, safe, and trustworthy. They don't have to educate every potential buyer, whether that's a payer, whether that's a clinical partner, whether that's a large employer, for example. We've defined that in the pre-competitive space a priori. And so what we hear from our payer colleagues is that they are being bombarded by all of these innovators. And it's been challenging for them to determine what good looks like because there isn't a shared evidentiary framework. And for all of the fantastic innovations that are out there, there's still, and I'm going to use a technical term, some real crap. Some people trying to move too quickly or people who fundamentally don't understand the market and it's causing fatigue. So, so much of the value that our payer colleagues get is a seat at the table to one, learn what good looks like, to be able to improve their own decision-making, to be able to inform their own strategies, 
but also to be able to sort of communicate and interact with leaders in the field in real time to say, hey, look, these are the parameters that we work with within our organization. Some of you are being exposed to this for the first time, and this is an opportunity to do some real life education with leading innovators in the field. So I think that's the greatest value proposition, which is frankly alignment around what good looks like. I've used the term herding cats, especially as you work across multitude of organizations and everybody's incentives sometimes are different. Again, watching you guys from the sidelines, I think you've done an amazing job pulling this together. How are you guys actually accomplishing this? Because I think even entrepreneurs can learn from you as well. First of all, I am really proud of how successful we've been in just shy of four years. I think the impact we've had is absolutely enormous. And I described to you, in fact, I think I, <laughs> I reeled off a long list of different stakeholders in the field. And I think our secret source has actually been stopping, listening, learning to what their pain points are and what their challenges are, and then making sure that we don't have a stakeholder missing when we are doing our work. So a deep understanding of the problems we need to solve for and how those problems manifest differently for different stakeholders and making sure that we have everyone in the room so that actually we can address all of the challenges and come up with complete solutions as we do our work. I would also venture that we feel passionately about the patients that our industry exists to serve. We feel passionately about equity, about access, about affordability, but we made the very clear decision that the vector that we were going to use to have that affect on patient lives and patients' care was going to be to support the industry to bring the digitization of healthcare to fruition in a way that worked for everyone from a business perspective, but also for the patients that our industry exists to care for. And so we take really seriously this idea that our work is driven by the industry. Like we don't sit here and decide what problems to tackle. We listen carefully to the field and that's how we react. Then we do that work with the field and we develop resources that actually, you know, if we want to say it, product market fit. We understand the market and the people who need to actually do the work at the coalface and we give them what they need in order to drive them ahead. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Jen Goldsack, CEO of Dime, the Digital Medicine Society. We talked about digital medicines, and in the molecular sense, it goes through a very rigorous process. When we talk about digital medicines, maybe you can talk a little bit more about the science behind digital medicines and DIME's approach and role across the ecosystem, but also, I mean, it's very condition-specific, such a large and broad range of digital medicines out there. So curious on how you're approaching the science behind digital medicines and evidence generation. One of the areas of the field that we think is fundamentally important and where we've spent a lot of time focusing, and this is the nice sort of yin to the yang of how we work with DTA, is we've thought an awful lot about digital measurement products. So how can we think about those tools that are sort of monitoring, that are identifying different digital phenotypes, that are sort of measuring as opposed to intervening? And measuring obviously includes diagnostic. It's sort of the highest standard, if you like, of a measurement. But when we've built out evidentiary frameworks, so for example, our V3 framework, we've actually seen that adopted by over a hundred leading organizations in industry. EMA actually relies upon our V3 framework when they are evaluating 
DHT, so digital measures that might be used in traditional medical product development. We see that that aligns with new guidance that's come out from FDA on DHTs. So we've focused a great deal on what does good measurement look like, whether that's measurement of risk in an algorithm that's being implied on top of EHR data, or whether it's a full stack product like sensor plus an algorithm, and then clinical interpretation of that data. So to our mind, we actually feel that the sensor-based measurement products, the science is incredibly mature there. And I think we see that by the broad adoption of these products. So we maintain digital endpoints library where we track and monitor where traditional medical product developers are using digital endpoints. We saw that grow from 34 endpoints and 12 sponsors using them in October 2019 to 374 digital endpoints currently being used by 107 sponsors during our last update in Q1, and we're due another update in the next month or so. So the proof is sort of in the pudding there that the adoption, the trust, the reliance on these tools is emerging. And then I'm going to continue to talk about the difference between products and care. And I think what's really interesting is, unfortunately, a lot of healthcare is not high quality, and we don't agonize over that. There's an argument that we should when it comes to things like reimbursement. But the moment that someone approaches a payer to say, look, I have this virtual first approach to caring for someone, this is what we do, there is a much higher burden of evidence on those organizations, whereas a traditional physician could just put sort of a shingle above a door and just start getting reimbursed for care that they provide. Now, that's a little glib. It's not quite that easy, but for the sake of conversation. And so where we spend an awful lot of time focusing is where can evidence and quality actually help us? Where can it help us drive change? And I think it's around this statement that digitally enabled approaches to care, virtual first approaches to care, like the future hybridization of healthcare is actually better. And if you want to say better, then you have to define how. And that's where through our sort of virtual first care work, we are spending an awful lot of time and energy. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel around what good healthcare looks like. Asked and answered, we've been delivering it for decades. There are regulations there, there are payment protocols, but rather we're saying if we want to be better and if we believe that digitally enabled approaches are better than existing approaches, what does that mean? Tell me what you mean by better and then tell me how you are going to prove it to me with your metrics and your parameters and your performance criteria. So that's a lot how we think about evidence at the product level, but then also at the care delivery level. I love the pragmatism and just getting down to the details, right? And what good or even great looks like. Now, we focused very much on the word digital, and for the listeners here, always hear me say that here at Your Coach, we do believe that to, for the foreseeable future, that human eye, that emotion, that empathy is still better than AI. I'm curious on how you personally, or through the dime lens, view human beings in the equation, and probably more specific around health coaching. It's such a great question, and I think I'll loop back to how I opened, which is, we're not tech determinists. We're not going to tech our way out of this mess. The industry of caring for people is about people in terms of the patients we're all here to serve and the folks who are providing the care. Now, I think what digital does is it allows us to address the maldistribution in the clinical experts we need to provide that care and the folks who need them. I also think it's going to help us recognize and manage that we need to be taking a team-based approach to care. I want to circle back to the health coach question. There is actually an enormous body of emerging evidence that shows that health coaching is critically important to 
great outcomes and health equity in healthcare. But what technology does, it enables us to stretch every clinical unit we have. And when I say clinical, I mean a unit of clinical expertise. It allows us to stretch that further by making sure that we're appropriately triaging care. So only cases that truly require a highly qualified clinical expert, whether that's a specialist or whether it's a physician as opposed to a nurse practitioner, that that triage is being done. Let's go back to this idea of trying to keep people out of the clinic, that we aren't pulling people in for routine visits. But the other thing we talk about when we talk about virtual first care as opposed to traditional healthcare, and this is a bit controversial, is that traditional healthcare, unless you're a surgeon or an interventionist, provides a recommendation. We recommend you go and see this specialist. We recommend that you fill this prescription. We recommend that you go to physio. And the burden of work is placed back upon the patient. And that's why it's so hard to be sick. And that's why we see such rampant inequity on top of the actual clinical conditions. What technology and virtual first care approaches enable us to do is to actually provide solutions. So when we think about it's not just a prescription. If you have a complex and catastrophic, unfortunately still in some cases, diagnosis like cancer, or if you have a chronic and debilitating diagnosis like IBS, for example, there are clinical elements to your care, but there's other behavioral aspects. There's other aspects around what do you need to do next? How is your mental health as you are enduring this? Where a health coach can actually serve as that air traffic control to make sure that you are getting all of the clinical care that you need, but also there is whole person care and digital tools, communication tools, records transfer, new types of approaches that work for people in their home as opposed to in the clinic are so powerful at actually allowing us to embrace this team-based approach. Thank you for that, Jen. I want to jump back to leading the organization as Dime. I mean, leading a nonprofit organization is very different than for-profit. Your rough off-the-cuff thoughts as a CEO? Do you know, I thought it would be, and it's not. And I don't know whether that's because it's how we've structured the organization, but we have a mission, and the mission is why I think we've been able to assemble this absolutely extraordinary team. The team at Dime are not only experts, but hardworking and passionate in pursuit of the mission and are really dedicated to doing this work with the community. But we have a mission, just like any other company does, and we need to figure out how to make it as successful as possible. And so I, in the younger days of Dime, was more uncomfortable with the financial side of it because I felt like it cheapened the mission. But I've come to realize no money, no mission, right? We have to figure out how to fund the work that we do. And it's not enough just to do great work. We have to take the time to educate and to disseminate. And we need to be able to fund those activities. So we are actually doing the necessary work to support the field to make sure that every innovator has the greatest chance of bringing their solution to bear for the patients that our industry exists to serve. We have to think about revenue. We have to think about paying for these things. We have to think about growth. We have to think about hard opportunity costs. If we decide to do one thing, we are not going to do another thing because unfortunately we don't live in a world of unlimited resources. And if I really wanted to be a jerk, I think the one thing that's different is I can't sell off a chunk of the company in return for a great big chunk of cash in the bank account. We can only eat what we kill. And so there is a lot that goes into our strategy. And I think this is why it's so important that we're in lockstep with industry because 
if we start doing work that no one is willing to support from industry, we're probably not doing the highest value work. We're probably not solving the most pressing challenge. So it actually, I think, helps keep us honest and focused in the mission rather than doing passion projects that may be important, but may not be ready for implementation and thus aren't actually going to change the field today. Sometimes it's not a no, it's a not yet, and we have to make those choices. So one would argue the for-profit entrepreneurs can learn from you because you literally got to be break even on day one. Yes, we do. And we had to figure that out. And it makes growth, especially in the early days, particularly challenging because the only way you could bridge from the idea you had today to something that was revenue generating was literally by putting your own body in the gap. And so definitely have a, a lot of gray hairs now that I didn't have when we started. But we really believed in this. We had a community that came with us. I think that the pandemic hit and it stopped being a nice to have exploratory endeavor and it became a need to have that we quickly developed an understanding of how to do this. And I'm proud of the impact we've had, but we've been growing in lockstep with the rest of the industry that has worked hard, that has dug in, that has matured because collectively we believe that in the digital era of healthcare, we can care for people in a way that we haven't been able to before, in a way that's affordable, in a way that's more effective, in a way that's more equitable. And that's the end game here. That was a good advice to begin with, but I would love to expand on it. I always ask what advice you would give. And I think given that we've been talking about entrepreneurs leading the way, maybe your thoughts and advice to some of the digital medicine entrepreneurs out there. It's such a good question. And actually, we mentioned some of the work that we've been doing with our colleagues at the Digital Therapeutics Alliance and others, particularly focused on regulatory pathways. And it's interesting, the field today is at a very different moment than it was when we launched, say, four years ago. And in the US in particular, and increasingly in other markets, the regulatory pathways are increasingly well-defined. What different product types are, what the different regulatory pathways are, what the evidentiary requirements are. And we have seen a little bit of reluctance to embrace the regulatory environment by entrepreneurs, perhaps fear, uncertainty and doubt about burden and pathways. But what I would say, especially in this market and especially given the maturity of regulations around the world, every digital medicine entrepreneur should be considering regulatory strategy as core to good business strategy. It is not a burden, it is a differentiator. And that doesn't mean you have to go down a regulatory pathway, but you have to actually understand what claims are your products making, who are they intended to serve, and with that in mind, to embrace the regulatory pathways that are available to you and to recognize that's not just about regulatory oversight, it's about access to different markets, it's about access to different revenue streams. And I truly believe that in the coming year or two, those organizations, those innovators who embrace regulatory strategy and are thoughtful about it and prioritize it as they think about product portfolio and business strategy will fare much better than those who don't. Love it. Let's move on. I started asking this question, who from the industry and whether you want to stick to one of the concentric circles or the broader one, who inspires you or who is your role model for lack of a better term? Who do you look up to? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I feel like in an industry where we're all in it every day and trying to build it from scratch because we deeply believe that we can do something better here. But that's a challenging question. And I might actually reach outside of our industry and reference 
So I alluded to previous life as an athlete and I actually went to the Olympics in a two-person boat. So my boatmate from the games is an entrepreneur in her own right. She's actually an immigration lawyer. And so she's done, I mean, during an incredibly challenging time with sort of immigration law and reform, different political environments. And somehow or other, we both got into tackling these hard and big problems. And so it's actually really nice sometimes to have someone who inspires you and also a friend where you can talk about what's challenging, when you can talk about how frustratingly hard it is sometimes to move forward when the end goal seems so virtuous and yet it's so difficult. And so that has been, I think, my strength in recent years, which is I have this quite literally a teammate who's out trying to lead the field, solve half problems, do hard things, make the world better in a different industry. And we're not that special over here. Doing great things is hard. And that's a nice reminder, I think, for all of us who feel like we are in the slog a little bit every day. Amazing. Yeah, we all got to build resilience to the tough problems that we need to solve every day. Well, Jen, we started with you. So let's end with you here. What gets you up in the morning? You only need to listen to the stories of people whose lives have been blown up by ill health, whether it's the parent of a sick child, whether it's a cancer survivor who's now navigating potential bankruptcy because of the financial toxicity that comes with it, someone who has lost a loved one because the diagnosis came too late, someone who has struggled for years and years with a condition that is treatable, but they haven't been able to access that treatment. It is incredibly frustrating to see an industry that is intended to care for people that is broken and on the back foot and not because the clinicians and the researchers who work within it aren't passionate or working incredibly hard every day, but because the system is broken and because the system is no longer fit for purpose for the modern era. And I think that it's what an opportunity for all of us to be working in this field at this moment where we have the opportunity to build from scratch a new and better approach to doing this, an approach that we aren't going to spend the next five decades unwinding because we did it wrong, that we can actually use these tools and these new digital approaches to make sure that the healthcare system works for everyone. It's the opportunity of not just a career, but a lifetime for all of us who are working in this. And the opportunity is fleeting. Practices are going to become ossified quite quickly. The decision to reimburse or not in the coming years will cause some practices to thrive and some to die. And we need to push hard now. We need to be focused. We need to be collaborative because these opportunities don't come along often. And this opportunity to reimagine healthcare will never come along again in our lifetimes. Let's build it right out of the gates. That's what gets me up every day. Well, that last minute or so needs to go viral. So whoever is listening, subscribe, <laughs> hit the bell, forward it on. So Jen, thank you so much for making the time. I appreciate it. Oh gosh, my pleasure. It was great to be here today. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.